This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Janice Bell Meisenhelder, the author of Surviving the Unthinkable, The Loss of a Child. Trust your instincts. Your inner voice will guide you with each step that is right for you. For a bereaved mother, grief never ends. We always miss our children's earthly presence. We always carry them in our heart. We always long to talk to them. Our yearning for our child gradually becomes one theme among several in our lives rather than our predominant tune. Over many years, our honoring moves from distressing mourning to a cherishing and treasuring of their lives. Our grief becomes mixed with gratitude for every minute and memory as we move from agonizing lamentation of the loss to a combination of sadness and bittersweet celebration of the life and gift of this child. Our continued honoring, talking, and remembering are all forms of celebrating this precious life and staying connected with our children. At some point, many mothers look back and realize that they have grown through all the trauma and loss. Their hearts did indeed enlarge. Their compassion is more encompassing, their self-knowledge more in-depth. Such personal growth in no way justifies our tragic loss, but it does equip us to better help others, to allow some redemption to spring from the devastation of loss. As you use your compassion to help others, so do you continue to celebrate the life of your child. May you find meaning in your journey, companionship along the road, and peace in your life, writes Janice. Janice Bell Meisenhelder holds a Doctor of Nursing Science from Boston University. Her clinical nursing practice was at Massachusetts General Hospital in adult intensive care and oncology. She is currently a professor of nursing at Emanuel College in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Meisenhelder has published 35 articles as a first author in professional scholarly journals, the majority of which are original research. She recently published clinical guidelines for working with bereaved parents in the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. She is a recent invited speaker at the National Conference of Bereaved Parents USA, the Compassionate Friends, and the Association of Death Education and Counseling, and a featured speaker for Open to Hope website. Here is the interview with Janice Bell Meisenhelder. In your own words, who is Dr. Janice Bell Meisenhelder? I think my core, I'm a person of faith. So in the very center of who I am, I'm a Christian. And that gets expressed through my relationships. So my relationships with God and with 
my family, my husband, my daughters, son-in-law, grandson, my friends. I'm a college professor, so I express myself and my caring to my colleagues and my students, as well as my friends and extended family. So before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Surviving the Unthinkable, The Loss of a Child, I have a few questions. I call them warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. So my first question is, what is your own definition for grief? That's a great question. It's a sadness. It's a longing. It's a heaviness that is uncontrollable. Depending upon the degree of loss, it can be unrelenting. I'm not sure I really even, I don't think I even defined it in my book because when you're in the middle of it, you know what it is. Right. Mm, right. What is your idea of support and or what is true support? It's entering into the pain of another person and doing your best to give them what they need. And that's very difficult to do. It takes courage on the part who wants to give support. And some people just don't have the emotional strength to do that, which is okay. You have to know what you can give and what you can't give. You know, and then you also have to be able to listen to the other person to figure out, you know, what is it that they need. Although I believe there are some universal ways to comfort people in grief. That if you know those, you can fall back on them when you feel helpless at someone else's pain. It's a helpless feeling because you can't fix it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be asking you that question later. I don't think I have it here, the universal way of supporting someone who is grieving. That sounds like a good question. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Dr. Janice? Choosing to to live a meaningful life. So rising above the circumstances. I don't think it's a, it's a, It's almost a a mental condition or condition of the heart, maybe, more than any circumstances themselves. I like that. I love that, actually. Condition of the heart, right? At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And what is your vision for a new reality? Well, you know, it sounds very trite what the world needs now is love, but I think yeah. we all, we all, I mean, love, what, what, is pe- what do people need and everybody in the world? Certainly forgiveness, unconditional acceptance. And, and I feel very strongly about needing to give people specific affirmation. So you mentioned kindness as, as as a mantra kind of of your life, a guiding principle. And I think one way one way to express I love that. And I think one of the way to express kindness or to really help people feel reinforced, feel supported, is to be able to identify what is it about this individual who that makes them special 
And it doesn't have to be anything big. It can be little things. But reflecting that back to that person. And that's, it doesn't come automatically to us. Criticism comes automatically to us. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) So you have to make it, you have to be intentional about wanting to reinforce people for their specific traits that are special about them. And it takes energy and effort to do that. And it does. So it can be draining. Yeah, it does. So true. Like anything that's great, that's wonderful about life, yeah, it takes practice and yeah. Yes. Inner work, right? Yes. Mm, what is love to you? Love is wanting, pure love is wanting the best for the other person. And the greatest love is self-sacrificial. So you're putting the other person's needs ahead of your own. That's very difficult too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But that's what pure love is. Yeah, I like that. Those two definitions, two different kind. Yeah, I like to think that if we are sacrificing, it's because we have a reason to do that. It might be the lessons that we want to learn from that experience. So that sounds good to me too. My next warm-up question, I'm almost done with them. It's about peace. What is your understanding of peace? Peace is actually relate, well, I was going to say it's almost related to joy, but it's, it's this deep feeling of tranquility and acceptance, a contentment, and an ability to, for me, peace comes when I can trust God, that my life is ultimately in his hands. And whatever happens, he will be there for me. There's a peace to that. Or an acceptance of even negative things that happen. But, no, but being able to trust, even if you don't understand that there's a reason, trusting that there is a reason. We don't have to understand it. You see, suffering is so much, you can handle suffering if you know there's a if there's meaning to it. Right. Right. It's suffering without meaning that will drive you crazy. But you can be at peace with it if there's some meaning into it. I love your wisdom already. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in the I mean deep wisdom, the heart wisdom I call it. Um, when you say that peace and then you connect it somehow to joy kind of happiness. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, from that space, you'll be able to smile again because there's trust. You connected back to trust. How beautiful. Thank you. That's beautiful and so true. So my next question is about God. What, where, and who is God to you? Well, I'm a Jesus follower. So God to me is a supreme creator, gave his son that we can all be forgiven We don't have to do anything to be forgiven. We're just forgiven as we just accept that forgiveness and that we can have a personal relationship with God. God is a person who longs to be connected with us and longs to bless us and gives us the comforter of the Holy Spirit as we accept Jesus into our lives. Is that it? Yeah. Is that enough? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it is enough. 
<laughs> I guess um, the only question that um, remains is where is God? Where do you think God is? Everywhere. Mm, yeah. Everywhere. Omnipresent. Omnipowerful. So God is everywhere. When we are open to connecting with God, we can feel God. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yes, a thousand times to that. God's everywhere, right? In my last warm-up question, what do you think is the purpose, the main purpose of your life? I think we are each put on this earth for a God-given purpose. So my purpose, I think, is to comfort those in pain and suffering. And that's kind of been a thing. I think your purpose unfolds as you live your life. Yeah, I don't think you're, you're born knowing it. I think it, and it may change during the journey of your life, but I became a nurse. I always wanted to, went into the intensive care unit. I always wanted to help the people who were most in need. And, and uh, I went into academe so that I could teach other people how to help those in suffering. And, and I wrote this book because I, there's, I don't know of any suffering emotional suffering that is worse than losing a child. And I wanted to help those in pain and suffering. So, and a a big part of doing that is because you can't fix people, you can't take away, but the big part of comfort is going back to reinforcing that person for their worth and value. It's specific feedback and specific affirmation for their worth and value. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a wonderful purpose to be aware of, to help to ease suffering in the world. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you again. (laughs) And uh, let's talk about your work. How did you become a writer? Well, I'm uh, a good question. (laughs) I've been teaching in college and universities for over 30 years. And so part of the academic role expectations is publishing in scientific and professional journals. So I've been doing that kind of writing for many years, but I also have a blog called The Heart of a Nurse. And I think I, which is more emotional support for nurses. And I think I started with writing more of heartfelt kinds of messages to my students as I saw them dealing with going into the hospital and seeing suffering for the first time and not knowing how to deal with it or, you know, not understanding how can someone be in palliative care nursing and and deal with death all the time and how can someone, uh, what do you do when you're, when you're, you know, patient dies or, 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 you know, what if my parents are worried about me contracting, you know, COVID-19, for example, what, you know, should I be worried? So there's all the, you know, there's a tremendous amount of emotional strength that you need to be a nurse. And so part of my teaching evolved to, to imparting, as you said, you know, wisdom, because they can learn the knowledge from the book. But my nursing wisdom, and I send out, I continue to send out emails to my students who now are graduate students and they're nurses themselves, but I continue to send out emails called Less Beyond the Textbook 
about those other kinds of issues that are very germane and pertinent to life and nursing life. Um, I think my non-academic writing evolved as I was trying to help people. <laughs> so I was trying to help my students deal with their emotional issues. And then, of course, I lost a daughter to cancer. And I knew that I needed to take this information that I had learned. I'm an academic, so I had the unique skills to be able to research all the literature and pull together all of the science and combine that with my emotional experiential knowledge and combine that with my experience in peer counseling and all the collection of different ways people have, mothers especially, had dealt with that. So I felt, and then I wrote the book in a format, the way nurse, I didn't even realize I was doing this until, until after it was done. I wrote it like a nurse does, where you give your patients these tiny pieces of information and then tell them like, so like if you, if you get a fever, this is what you should do, you know, one, two, three, four. And the whole book is written that way, you know. If this happens, here are some things to think about. Really for the mind in crisis. Yeah, it's wonderfully written. It's like prescriptions, like you said. Yeah, you're giving prescriptions. Right. Mm, great advice and suggestions. And I, by reading it, I just felt like, yeah, that kindness. Yeah, you just, um, yeah, you've been kind, very kind. So I guess my next question is about the process of writing the book. How did that change you? Or did it, any change occur during the process? The book had been writing in my head for probably a couple of years before I actually had the time to sit down and write it. I waited till I had a sabbatical so I could just do nothing but write this book. And the rough draft actually got done in two weeks because it had all been in my head. I mean, the literature review took a lot longer, you know, to make sure I had all the research and that kind of thing in and then editing it over and over again. It was difficult. People say, oh, it must have been cathartic. No, it wasn't actually. I mean, I, it was a calling. I felt that this was something I was meant to do. So I had an urgency to get it done. But the editing over and over and over again was actually painful because every time I went through it, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. you're a writer, you got that. Oh, yeah. And plus, every, every time I went through it, I had to go through those emotions all over again. You know, so it was it was draining. Did it change me? I think it, I think the experience of losing a child changed my trajectory. So I really stopped doing a lot of publishing in academe and went more in you know scientific journals. I did some because I'm still in that position, but uh, I went more towards you know I, it's more it was important to me to spend whatever time I had contributing to people who were suffering in grief, doing what I can to relieve that. So I wanted my efforts to be geared toward that level. Right. Does that make sense? It does very much, yeah. There's something about writing that is so healing. Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is. hard to explain. Some I ask the question sometimes, do you feel the same way? That's a wonderful healing tool. It helps clarify your thoughts. Mm. Yeah. 
So it, you, you always clarify your thoughts when you're writing so you can have a better handle on what it is you're experiencing, what it is you want to give to the other person. I certainly believe that journaling is very healing and very important. And there's good research on that. And you know what? There's one study that mentions that particularly journaling about positive things. In fact, there's a lot of studies that show gratitude journals are very, very helpful in in all kinds of ways of healing. Right. And that's true. Yeah, so true. So my official first question about grief is, talk to me about the main misconceptions about grief and loss. Great question. So people, uh, Freud did a tremendous disservice because he, that and, and, and the misconceptions about Kubler-Ross, people think that grief should be over in a year and there is no time trajectory for grief. It depends upon your relationship with the person lost, how deep it was with that relationship meant to you, and grief can be endless. You can be grieving a person for the rest of your life. That doesn't mean that you don't still love and have joy and have happiness and have other other emotions and, and, you know, have a fulfilled life and a meaningful life, but you always miss that person. And I think if people... It's it would be kinder if other people understood that rather than feeling like you know, putting a imposing a time frame on people that's not helpful. And then the whole idea of stages. There are no stages. There are there's a swirling of emotions that recycle for most people and anger and and frustration and great sadness and there's a lot of different emotions and that will come in different intensities and at different times. And over time, as you heal, they decrease in their intensity, but they they will still reemerge. And it's not helpful to think that you have to go through a certain stage. The more you can just accept whatever your feelings are as being normal, the less agony you have in suffering through them. True, so true. And then the last, the last thing in particular is bereave, the, the misconception that bereaved people would rather not talk about the one the person that they lost. Bereaved people love talking about the person. They need to talk about the person that they lost. There may be a time and place, you know, when I first lost my daughter, and when I, it was during the summer, and I was going back to school, resuming my work. Uh, teaching in a college in the fall, and I I let people know, please don't bring it up because I I worked with a hundred students and, and lots of faculty, and if I had, you know, twenty people come up to me during the day and say I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, there's no way I could function. I couldn't function. So there is a time and place for that, but um, but you know, let the if you have the emotional strains to allow the person to talk about the person lost, that was a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, it sounds like to me, right? And then, interesting, you talk about the time. So people believe that there is a time frame. So what do you think then happens? Why most people, or some of us, think that way? Oh, I, well, I think it's a cultural assumption. I actually do 
explain Freud because he started off with <laughs> saying it was a year because that was his experience with losing a parent, you know, and it's it all it's all very different from who it is. So I think it's a cultural assumption. I also think that it's reinforced um, through some disciplines because people need to counselors need to be able to bill for their services and and our payment service is set up to only pay people if there's a pathology involved so yeah if you think about it you have to have a diagnostic group right so you have to come up with some diagnosis in order to you know rebound grief or complicated grief or whatever in order to justify um you know, counseling someone beyond a year. So it's, there's multiple factors that feed into it. But the less we can judge someone who, you know, not only in terms of time frame, but whether or not they're coping, everybody judges. If you've had a loss, people either, if you're falling, if you're crying too much, they think you're falling apart and not coping. And if you're not crying enough, then they also think that there's something, you know, like you, <laughs> we just need to not judge people and realize that, a grief journey is very individual. Wow. It's very individual. Right. Well, I absolutely love what you just said. This is so powerful, judgment. i recently been thinking about, every time I think about judgment, I think about violence. It's so violent. And the opposite, uh, it's kindness. It's, yeah, the opposite of judging might be being loving, being open. Yeah. Yes. So... I have a question for you here that I have asked some other guests who have been through the same, similar experience. And um, let me see. Yeah, I really want to hear this from you. Do you think that somehow we can prepare for losses like this? Oh, that's a very good question. I think we can know about, we can learn about grief. And that will be helpful. So if we know that, you know, it's going to be painful and that's okay, that you need to let yourself cry as much as you want to or do whatever feels right at that moment to allow yourself to do that. And it's very important to decrease your expectations. So if you know that you're going to experience a loss, that's not the time when you can ramp up to a new job or, you know, take on any additional. It's quite the opposite. That's the time when you need to find space so you can just sit still and do nothing and stare into space if that's what you need to do. So I, I do think you can have some coping mechanisms kind of in, your, in the back of your mind to fall back on and set your life up. So you've got support systems that you can, people that you can talk to who aren't going to judge you, who you trust, maybe people who've been through similar losses, but it's a very unique experience. So when I knew my, my daughter had cancer, she had a terminal diagnosis, and I knew I was most likely going to lose her. I always hope for a miracle, you always do, but... I was also prepared for the worst, and I and I had lost my father suddenly uh, about 15 years earlier. And I thought, well, 
you know, I, I know what grieving is. Well, I didn't, I mean, yes, there's, there was no comparison. There was no comparison. Like, so I couldn't have prepared myself for this, but having had that experience in the po- in the past did give me some familiarity and some idea how to go about it. And, but that's why I wrote this book because I wanted to give people guidance for how to get through and reassurance that whatever it is they were feeling is normal. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. You talk a lot about acceptance and creating this space uh, for peace, which you sort of described as the coexistence of joy and sorrow in a way. So they coexist. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about the uh, initial shock and what is the most important thing to remember or the most important things to remember? For someone who is experiencing this? Yeah, who just got the news and the initial shock, you call it, when you get the final, yeah, news. I think you need to allow yourself to to acknowledge the trauma for what it is because it's an invisible wound, you say. And so everyone around you doesn't realize that you've just been absolutely totaled and devastated. I, you know, I, I compare it to being in an intensive care unit where... Yeah, right. That's interesting. You know, you have a machine breathing for you and you, you wouldn't expect yourself to do anything, would you? But, but yet... When we get hit with that kind of emotional trauma, there's all kinds of expectations that we're, we're expected to do. And that's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. So, uh, you know, some parents say they can't get out of bed in the morning. You know, it takes them a while to just be able to get out of bed and function. And that's, again, that's a normal reaction. But we judge ourselves, you see. We always judge ourselves and we're always very harsh on ourselves. So we think we should be doing more. And that's very detrimental. I agree. A hundred percent. So most of the advice you're giving, it's not just for the ones who grieve, but also for life. The ones, I mean, that's just wisdom for life itself. That's right. And, And I'm talking about very severe losses, but Right now, we're we, for the past, you know, eight or nine weeks, we've all experienced losses. Everyone has experienced losses, and that's legitimate to grieve those losses as well. Yeah. So, speaking of that traumatic reaction or the trauma that it causes, do you recommend medication? Is that a, a good coping mechanism? I think that's a very individual decision should be made with a physician or healthcare or nurse practitioner. Um, But medication can help you, can help someone like get sleep, which is critical, but that you have to grieve and medication won't, won't take away the process that you have to go through to grieve. So you still have to face those very painful emotions. You still have to express those painful emotions somehow 
over and over again in order to process them and get through to the other side, in order for them to be able to relieve and ease and and heal. So certainly not, I w- it's not my first go-to in terms of, and it's not a replacement for actually crying, expressing the pain and honoring the loss. Someone has to, when you lose someone very close to you, you need to find a way to honor that person. And that's very healing to do that. I love that. Yeah. And that's why I I asked the question. (laughs) So is there such a thing as healthy ways to grief and unhealthy ways to grief? Absolutely. So healthy ways to grieve is, is getting your, expressing that pain, expressing that grief, whether it be crying, some, I know when mom used to get in the car and go to an empty parking lot and just let out a primal scream, um, just get it out. But people might draw or they, or men often do physical exercise, you know, work out at a gym or run more way. There's, so there's different ways of releasing it, but you have to you have to express the pain. And that's healthy. And taking care of yourself is very healthy. So doing good health habits. As much as you can sleep, you know, good nutrition, that will that will help because you're trying to heal. You grieve with your body as well as your mind and your heart. And listening to people, I mean, talking to people who can listen to you and help you process all of these emotions. Unhealthy. Unhealthy is substance abuse. <laughs> you know, unhealthy is, I mean, you might not have thought that yourself, but I'm a nurse. So unhealthy is, is you know, too much drinking, too much, any kind of substance abuse, um, any kind of self-destructive, any kind of self-destructive um, behaviors, and certainly in terms of thoughts, blaming, blaming either blame, especially blaming yourself, which which mothers almost universally blame themselves, even if it's irrational, like even if they had absolutely nothing to do, just because it's this primal feeling like I must be responsible. I'm their mother, you know. So you have to. It, it helps to to do some thought discipline. Yeah. What about um, support groups, Dr. Janice? Is that something that is uh, important? That I think I asked the question because I met somebody uh, in the past who was going to those meetings and she actually it became her way of living. Now she couldn't get out of that. She was drinking and then that's the unhealthy way of, like you just described, of griefing. And then she went to... Um, support group, and that was her new, let's say, addiction. I think support groups are wonderful. And um, there's two support groups in for bereaved parents. One is the Bereaved Parents USA, and the other one is the Compassionate Friends. And they're national groups with national, with many, many, many local chapters. And I think they're in that support group, you find other people who aren't going to judge you, who understand the depths of your pain, who are accepting of whatever you might going through, and 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 can be hopeful in that you know they've they've 
experience some healing and it gives you hope that, okay, there is a, you know, there, I can still have a meaningful life. I can still find my way out of this. And I, and I don't, you know, I think, um, I'm not sure if someone felt that, that the support group was something they wanted to do, you know, ended up by being a lifelong practice of them. I'm not sure I would call that addiction. I think that that's kind of a healthy way of meeting. We all need social needs. We all need to feel close to other people. And because losing a child is this intense, unique kind of experience, you can feel a closeness with other people who understand your world and your reality that maybe you can't experience it with other groups so that might you know that, that I see that as a, a healthy thing okay. I'll take um, that back <laughs> thank you for educating me <laughs> I'll try to live the kind way and then I just said the word that I don't like actually <laughs> Um, yeah, that word, obsession, addiction, um, right, right. Uh, so it's actually okay if they um, belong to groups like that for the rest of their lives. Okay. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. I think most people don't. Or the people who do stay with those groups end up by being oh, helpers. Yeah, that's true. They end up by helping the, the new people who come. And actually, I, I visited one of those groups. I didn't join the group, but I visited one of those groups and they were saying, they were encouraging people who were, you know, several years out just to, to not stop coming because they, we need those people who aren't as fragile to be helping those people who are very fragile and very new. That makes a so, lot of sense. Yeah. So what is like, you mentioned something in your book that's very, I thought it was interesting, very interesting. You said, take a break from our grieving. So what is it like to take a break from grief? Oh, if you can take a break from grief, uh, just focus on something else and something positive. So sometimes going away, getting out of your usual environment or immersing yourself in something, a movie perhaps, or, you know, something that, will take your attention away from it for and, and into, into something pleasant. And <laughs> it, for whatever length of time you can do that, and initially you might not be able to. One mother said to me that it was over a year when she, she, start, she was reading a book to her one of her surviving children, and for the first time she realized that for the past 10 minutes she hadn't thought about her the child that she had lost. So it had always been a presence in her mind. And then suddenly she realized, oh, I didn't, it wasn't the presence. I was able to let it go for, for a short period of time. And that's the process of healing. So, and not to feel guilty. Mm, yeah. In this, yeah, that's a, a, I have questions here. Well, I'm not going to ask this question because that's about anger, guilt. Yeah, guilt specifically. How do mothers like you cope with that? Because it's not real. So how do you come to that understanding? But most mothers think it is real. My way of being able to let go of any guilt is by um, my framework of seeing God as being ultimately in control. And for 
when I do peer counseling for mothers who believe in a higher power of any kind, I will say to them, God is bigger than your mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. I mean, you can beat yourself up even if you don't feel responsible for for the child's death, you're still thinking of, oh, why did I, you know, yell at them for X, Y, and Z, right? I mean, the, and people do that. They torture themselves with that. And and just saying, number one, God is bigger than your mistakes. Number two, your child would not want you to be torturing yourself this way. Your child would want you to forgive yeah, yourself. Yeah, I love that. That can be helpful to people. Yeah, I love that. I love, love that. <laughs> yes. Hmm. So my next question is about, yeah, this surprised me in a way because I don't know much about it. So I thought was not common sense, but you talk about the child's belongings. So if the parents, they want to keep it, it's okay. It's not that you have to uh, give it away or so you don't remember. So that kind of, yeah, it, it was a surprise to me to know that it's okay to keep all the belongings. Yes, because you always long for that child. That's one thing that the research shows. You never stop longing for the child. And so their belongings are that you don't have the child, but the belongings are the next best thing you have to just have a physical memory of them, have a physical presence of them. And yes, you. I'm so glad you brought that point because our culture tells us to get rid of things right away. And that's really not, that's not a wise thing to do when you've lost someone who's very near and dear to you. Even if you just put them away for a while and then decide, you can always get rid of them. You can't get them back. Yeah. And that, I think the reason why I, it was a surprise to me is because of the triggers. That that's something that you talk about too, the best ways to cope with triggers. And I thought the belongings would always become a trigger. But you're saying, nah, it's actually, you need that. Right. You can tell what's a trigger that it makes you, you know, versus something that gives you comfort. And usually the things, things that you live with are usually things that give you comfort. So triggers are often things that you don't expect. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I like that because this is a, an understanding that uh, the mother has in her mind. So that, like you said about guilt, it's not real, but they think it is. So, yeah, it's all about how the mind works and understands reality. Right? Another question I have is about we're almost at the end of the interview, but I, have, I wanted to ask this question about spiritual crisis after loss and also the spiritual signs and messages. Well, yes. And I mean, anytime we're in deep pain, it, a, a health crisis of our own or, you know, loss, it triggers a spiritual crisis. And in that, it goes back to meaning. Why is there suffering goes back to meaning? Is there meaning in suffering? And that itself is a spiritual question. So I had, you know, I'd been a Christian and, and I practiced Christianity for decades and decades before losing my daughter. Um, I did not, I had been through previous smaller spiritual, you know, struggles or whatever, so that when this came, it was not something that threw me in particular, but I did see that with other women and with other, I always refer to women because that's who I peer counseled. Men grieve differently. I don't feel like I have the right to claim an expertise um, for men. So, um, 
we can have signs and messages and, and some people, uh, you know, attribute them as messages from God and other people attribute them as messages from their, their deceased child or the, the person, the deceased person who is now a spiritual person. I interpret them as both. You know, I, 80, there's one study that showed 80% of uh, parents who've lost a child feel like they've gotten the sign from that child. So it's a very common experience. And to me, it's very real. The signs are usually very subtle. So it's very easy for people to explain them away. Um, but I think it's a mistake to explain them away. I think you, I think we need, there's more to this world than the physical world. Of course. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. And my last question uh, is about, uh, goes back to, what you spoke earlier about the universal ways to support um, people in grief. Can you tell me the universal ways that like the most kind, the best ways, and also the opposite? What are some ways that are not helpful? Oh, good for you. So <laughs> that's because that's really good. <laughs> Listening and accepting the person, uh, wherever, whatever they're feeling, whatever they're experiencing, the, the grief journey is unique. Everybody heals differently. So you need to, don't advise them, just listen to them, allow them to figure out what's going to be best for them. Um, help them lower their expectations of themselves. Goes back to like they're in an ICU, even though they look like they're normal, they're, they've, they're destroyed inside. Um, and then this is the part that everyone, it's not even well written in the literature, Valeria. Positive specific positive affirmation you everyone in deep grief or any kind of any kind of suffering their own health crisis whatever feels less about themselves and that's supported in the research too there's a hit to the self-esteem and they need everybody needs very specific reinforcement for their worth and value that's unique to them and it can be it can be little things it can be you know it can be how you know you, your nails are painted beautifully today or, <laughs> or how, how wonderful you can smile so uh, let me give you an example one of my a, a beautiful young woman who lost a middle school son was meeting me at Starbucks. She walked into Starbucks and she just looked lovely and she gave me this smile and she sat down next to me and she said, if one more person tells me, you know, you're, you're doing so well, I'm going to smack them. <laughs> and of course, she looked so lovely and she'd given me this smile and I was, it was like a natural thing to say is, wow, you look so great, you know? And, right. and so I thought really hard and I said, it takes courage to walk into a room full of people and smile after you've lost a child. So it took me a while to figure out, okay, what specific thing did she just do that I can reinforce her for? So it takes effort, but that's really important to do. And then don't, the don't judge, don't try to fix their pain because you can't fix this. Don't try to find positive feelings, positive aspects like, oh, they're in a better place. That's 
terrible thing to say. It might be true, or we we assume it's true, but it negates their pain. It doesn't take their pain away. Don't ignore their loss. Don't tell them you know how they feel. But even if you think you do, maybe you do, maybe you don't. And and try not to suggest that they should be coping in a different way, like moving on or see a counselor or, you know, and those are, those are the kinds of things that people say when they can't stand watching another person suffer, which is understandable, but you have to have the courage to be able to just enter into that. It makes so much sense. And I also heard about uh, people who we often, when somebody is going through such a pain, we tend to offer a lot of support in the beginning and then ask them even, oh, you know, I'm here for you. I heard it's quite the opposite. We should be there for them in a sense of um, calling them and um, offering some kind of uh, suggesting, like uh, going out for coffee or be very specific with our ways of helping and not just leave it up to them because they might not call you <laughs> to ask you how to help them. <laughs> That's yeah. excellent. That's so very true. That's so very true. And as you said, people do it at the beginning, but you know, depending upon the extent of the loss, people may need that a year or two years or you know, one of my good friends brought over a casserole on the second anniversary of losing my daughter. And that's a really good friend who understands it doesn't go away. So it's support, it's actually it's not just in the beginning, but during and actually like the entire, maybe for the entire relationship, if you're friends with somebody who is grieving for the entire life, it's not just a, a moment, like most people think, yeah, in the beginning and then they disappear or they'll never talk about again. And the yeah. second part of my book is only 18 pages, but it gives those very specific suggestions about how to support for the rest of mm -hmm. their life. It's very detailed, yeah, the way, like you said, the prescriptions, <laughs> they're very clear. <laughs> they're easy. Oh. To understand. Yes, yeah, really, really great. I really thank you for the work that you do. The courage, it takes a lot of courage. There's a lot of beauty in that, so you know. Uh, it's kindness and love. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So my final question is, what is another word for healing? Growing in peace, growing in joy, feeling less pain. Yeah, it makes sense. It resonates. <laughs> we, um, yeah, I have not lost a child. I never had one. But we lose uh, so many things throughout life. Yeah, different kinds of losses. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? I think it's, that's a very powerful thing that we probably can strive for and only achieve maybe for moments at a time. But I think unconditional self-love would be like unconditional self-acceptance, right? So it's okay for, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be. So yeah, I, I certainly believe that's a very powerfully positive goal, maybe, goal. <laughs> yeah, it might be, might be just a practice. I hope, right, we can make it a practice somehow in, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's a destination for that, but it's a powerful practice for sure. <laughs>
you said self-acceptance, right? That is, yeah, this is it, yeah. And my last question, uh, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Uh, life is ever-changing. Life gives you wonderful opportunities. Every day is a new opportunity to grow, grow and, and give to people. And a life with God is an abundant life. It's a fulfilling life. It's a joyful life, even if you've lost a child. Thank you so much again, Dr. Janice, for your presence, your wisdom, your courage, and your beauty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And my last, last question, a technical one. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Okay. So I have a website, www.m as in Melissa, B as in Bell, M as in Meisenhilder, Publishers, that's with an S, dot com. And information about the book. And, of course, you can also order the book on Amazon uh, and Barnes and Nobles. It's on both websites. Information about me, information about my books, and probably any future endeavors are going to be on that MBM Publishers website. There's also a free giveaway, a little pamphlet on grief that is information and comfort for anyone experiencing any loss. It's not just for parents experiencing a loss that I would recommend. I give it freely. I give it out constantly to people who've experienced this loss. And I've, I've gotten a lot of good feedback about it being helpful, uh, especially because until you experience loss, you don't understand, you know, how devastating it can be. Right. So true. So true. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Janice Bell Meisenhelder, please visit her website, emmanuel.edu. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.